Hello and welcome to the Mindful Men Podcast, a show inspiring men to be mindful about their lives. Each week, we'll dive into a range of topics that matter to men and hear from everyday people doing extraordinary things. So if you love the show, please give it a five-star rating and share it with your mates. Now, before we get into this week's episode, please note that some of the content may trigger you. And if this happens, please reach out to your support networks. It's really important. If you can't get enough of Mindful Men, head over to our website. It's www.mindful-men.com.au. Find the show notes and the links to our socials there. But for now, sit back, relax, and let's get mindful. G'day guys and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Men podcast. I'm your host Simon Rinney and today we're getting mindful about the challenges that change us and in particular we're going to be focusing on the challenges that present after we have a stroke. And joining me for today's discussion, I've got Ali Flynn from New South Wales. How are you going, Ali? Hi, Simon. Thank you for having me today. And thanks for coming on. I'm really excited for you to join me on the Mindful Men podcast. I was fortunate enough to be a guest on your podcast, Challenges That Change Us. But to introduce you, you're a business owner of Tri-Altitude Performance. You've got a background in clinical therapy. And as I just said, you're a host of a podcast that is really amazing and doing amazing things. So thanks so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you. Now, Ali, when I joined you on your podcast, you asked me an interesting question to start off. And you asked me what animal best describes me. And I said I was a combination of two animals, the Tassie Devil and my old Cavoodle Wally. And they're both a little bit crazy in their own right. So actually, I'm interested to hear about what animal best describes you to start off this episode of the Michael Mare podcast. <laughs> I'm laughing because when I did my own episode, I also got asked that. And you would think I would know that question was coming and I totally forgot. And so (laughs) I had to ask a few people and the thing that came back, I had a kitten on steroids, a goat was probably the most common one and that is because, (laughs) I know, it's because I love people but are super independent. What did they say? I will eat anything, don't mind bucking against the system and a little bit feral at times. So um, <laughs> my youngest is like we call her homeless all the time because she just looks like she doesn't live in a home and she so loves to be outside. Like yesterday she walked in and she was just covered in mud, covered in mud. I'm like, mate, what have you been doing? She's like, been playing with the pigs and goats. But <laughs> her sister walks in after her and she's completely clean and I'm like, were you both playing with the goats? And they're like, yeah, that's me though. I was that kid that was just covered in mud. If I could sit on the ground, I'd be on the ground. If I could take my shoes off, I'd take my shoes off. So as much as I love to get dressed up, I much prefer to be in my casual clothes and probably outside barefoot just in nature and probably rolling around in the dirt. (laughs) (laughs) I love the sound of goats. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by goat sounds at the moment. Have you got a goat impersonation? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) I wanted to throw it out there and see what your thoughts were. (laughs) No, definitely not. Um. (laughs) You mentioned there that you're a mum as well. I didn't introduce you as a mum. So I always ask dads what it's like to be a dad, but I want to ask you, what is it like to you to be a mum? Oh, I remember when I first, so I've had three girls in three and a half years and I remember thinking like I was born to be a mum, but not in the way that I'm good at it, in the way that it fills my soul. But it's so hard. Like (laughs) as much as it fills every ounce of my being to be a mum and to be connected with my kids, it drives me up the wall and I get frustrated and I do it, I get it wrong more than I get it right. But I just feel like it was the piece in my life that completed my life. You know, I found my partner. I was really in love. I'd had a pretty rough upbringing and, you know, lots of this and that and quite a chaotic 20s and 30s. And and when the kids arrived, it was like I'd come home. It was like, yes, this is where I'm meant to be. But very challenging. Best and worst days of your life, I reckon. (laughs) (laughs) It's a different kind of chaos, isn't it? You're all of a sudden looking after somebody else's life and you've got to keep them alive, a bit like a goat. You've got to keep them alive yes. and just as dirty and just as chaotic. But, yeah, like it's a different chaos. It's a nice chaos though. And I also like envisaged in my mind that when I had kids I'd have all this time to sit down and talk to them. You know, background in psychology, I thought 
We'll have such valuable conversations. But no, they never ask me about sex unless it's at the dinner table and we've got visitors over. Or, you know, like I get these sticky conversations and I'm like, oh, I'm not ready. Oh, oh, God, I haven't, I don't know what I'm going to say to that. And I feel this kind of freeze, which is hilarious for anyone that knows me because I never run out of words, but I do. And I think, oh, what am I going to say to that? Like, I thought I'd be so prepared for these conversations. Afterwards, I love them, but in the moment, I'm that deer in headlights. I'm like, you just asked me what? <laughs> it's interesting because you mentioned, you touch on there, like, we don't always get it right as parents. And for someone who has a background in psychology, and I've got my background in social work, when I'm not showing up like the 100% dad that I think I need to be, like, I get really down on myself. How do you navigate through those little tricky you know, tantrums or arguments or disagreements? How do you navigate that? Well, I do say to the girls, I'm going to get it wrong too. Like, I say to them, we're humans, and, you know, it's, I need to learn to be okay with getting it wrong. And also I want you to be okay with me getting it wrong. Like sometimes it's about how we meet in the middle. That's really challenging in human behavior. If any relationship, every relationship is like, how do we meet in the middle? And yeah, when you're tired, when you're overwhelmed, when you're stressed, like it's really hard to show up with your A game and to be present enough and to to kind of sit there and be available to someone else. You just kind of want to do it your way. Well, I do, <laughs> my way or the highway. <laughs> and so it's just taking a moment and being like, okay, I don't have to get it right. I don't have to get it right all the time because there's learnings. I know in my experience, there's more learnings when I get it wrong or when I'm up against challenges or I'm up against people that I find challenging far more learnings in that moment than there ever will be in the times that are bliss, the sun is shining, nothing's going wrong. And our kids are the perfect people in the world to present challenges. Yes. (laughs) On a daily basis. (laughs) (laughs) Multiple times a day. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. How would you compare yourself before having kids to now being a mum? Like what's the difference? Well, interesting you should say that because I know we're going to be talking about my stroke and I had the stroke when the girls, when my baby, my youngest was nine months old. So it's almost pre-stroke, post-stroke, pre-mum, post-having babies because they kind of happened at the same time. But I would say before kids I was probably more flighty, more outgoing, more rebellious. My risk appetite was a lot higher. I was that person that would say yes to anything and everything. Whereas now I think I'm a lot more considered in, for example, just to give an example, a really light example, I love to ride horses. I grew up riding horses. I have three girls. We're on a property. I would love to have horses. My husband is allergic. Pre-children, I would have been like, I'm getting horses anyway, you know, like (laughs) I'll put them down the back paddock. I'll put the, you know, all the equipment can stay down there. But now I'm more considered in the sense that I know it's going to separate our family out. Like if we get horses on weekends, the children and I will be doing that and my husband won't be able to come or won't want to come. And so that's the approach I notice a lot more with kids. It's like, is this going to benefit all of us? If yes, great. If no, is this something I still want to do? And at what cost? Mm. And there is a way around that. You could just walk around with antihistamines in your pocket. Yeah, mate, I've tried that, right? <laughs> Hence why we have pigs and goats and dogs and fish and like hand-raised birds and guinea pigs and like the list goes on. I'm like, you could have just got me a horse. (laughs) We would have one animal. (laughs) So damn horses. Like it's the same with our family because my wife is allergic to horses and and a lot of things and and my daughter is allergic to a lot of things too. And so trying to navigate that and manage that is I think pre being a a dad, I would be very similar to you. Post being a dad, I'm very much – thinking about everybody else but myself. Yes. And it's that fruit bowl, right? Like the fruit bowl. I used to love fruit, but now I wouldn't eat a piece because what if there's not enough pieces for the kids? Like it's almost in a great way tapped into that kind of selfless part and how hopefully not abandoning yourself for everyone else, but to an element of like, let's be more considered here. Mm. There is more than just me and what I want and when I want to do it and working with one person. We're working with a unit now. I'd like to say I was the same in the the fruit bowl example, but my wife would always (laughs) pick me up saying, Simon, that was for the kids. (laughs) 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 Stuff in my face with food. Anyway, we digress. And so you you touched on stroke and, you know, pre-stroke and post-stroke life. To start off with, I'd like to, like, I love informing people of the mindfulness community about all these different things that go on in our lives. And, And there might be people that haven't heard of a stroke 
or know what it is. So can you start by just giving us a, an idea of what you believe a stroke to be? Well, interesting. Mine was slightly different to what your standard traditional stroke might be. And what I mean is that I have a brain condition, reversible vasoconstriction syndrome, which I didn't know I had. And it's about the bottom 5% of people with that condition end up having a stroke. And so it's due to the restriction in my brain and the blood not being able to get to the site that caused my stroke. But I did have the stroke-like symptoms. We did think stroke in the moment. So I was getting ready to run a boot camp. I had my three kids. I had stepped away from doing clinical therapy at that stage and I had started running a fitness business. That's a completely different story. I love talking business, but that's not why we're on today. And I went up to the bathroom to get dressed and I remember getting this headache on my left and pins and needles down my right. But when I say headache, I mean like my life is in danger. I am in deep shit right now. Like this is – and I screamed out to my husband and I remember thinking I'm having a stroke. Oh, no, I can't be. I'm 30. I'm fit. Like all of this went through my head and my husband got up to the bathroom and he thought exactly the same thing. He has a background in radiography and sonography, so background in medical, and he thought she's having a stroke. Oh, no, she's 30. She's fit. There's no way. <laughs> and then, yeah, we. he drove me to the hospital. By the time I got to the hospital, I could not recognize anyone that I knew because he works there. Couldn't recognize my mom. We were driving into town. We're about 5Ks from the hospital and I looked over at the Speedo and saw that he was going extremely fast and thinking, he's going to crash. Like there's no way he can drive that fast and us get to the hospital. And that's probably my last memory, solid memory that I have. And then after that it just, yeah, everything started to slide and we got there, couldn't recognize anyone. They thought being so young and fit, it must be a migraine because often a migraine can mimic stroke-like symptoms. And the next morning was when they realized that something more serious and sinister was going on. I'd lost vision in both my quadrants of my eyes, top quadrants, and I'd lost my short-term memory. They went and took me for an MRI and it showed up that I'd had a stroke. So they airlifted me to Sydney. Uh, we're about five hours between Sydney and Brisbane. And so they airlifted me to Sydney to RPA and that's when I started to get the treatment that I needed. So once I got to Sydney, they had me in ICU in the neuro ward and I was really fortunate to be able to still stand and walk around. A lot of people, that's not what they can do. And I did have trouble with balance and standing on one leg, but really the part of my brain that had been impacted was my where my short-term memory is stored and also my vision. Wow, like that's that's huge. Like as a someone in their thirties to be going through. Like, did you think like this was the end? Like, this was your last days on earth? Like, what was going through your mind? Do you remember when I first got that headache? I definitely thought my life is over. I remember having that kind of I don't know if you'd call it an aura or just this feeling that came over me that I was in a lot of trouble and that I may not get out of this. Once I got to Sydney, I don't have a lot of memory of that time. When I think back to it though, I remember just fighting every day for how do I get through this next day? So for me, it wasn't like, how do I get through the next month? And then what's next year going to look like? And am I ever going to get my memory back? It was really this sense of you need to just bring it right in and focus right in on what is the one thing you can do next. Like what do you need to know now or what do you need to try now to help with your recovery? Whereas I'm pretty sure if you ask my husband, he was the opposite. He was, what is our life going to look like? And he's the mother of my three children that can't, like there were times that I had trouble walking. There was, I had about, um, I don't know how you describe it, but pseudo seizures and I don't know whether there were many strokes, but there were times that I couldn't speak, I couldn't move my limbs, I couldn't, like I'd be having these seizure-like activity in the bed where my whole body would be shaking, where I couldn't feel anything. And that was pretty scary and they were happening on and off throughout the whole day. And my husband was constantly thinking, well, what's our life going to look like? You know, will she recover? If she does recover, is she ever going to recover to full capacity? You know, those kind of questions. So he held the future in his mind. I was very much in the present. I was like, how do I learn more about this? Who is the best person to talk to? Where is the physio? Where's the neurologist? What can they tell me? How can I find out what the one next thing is? What happened when you got to hospital? Like, 
what's the like do you do surgery is there treatment like can you talk us through what you had to go through there Yes, and again, let's preface this with my short-term memory loss. Um, <laughs> so if you talk to me and you talk to my husband, the stories can look slightly different. But my recollection of it was we arrived and they did a, a barrage of tests, MRIs. They did the one that they go in your thigh and up into your brain and have a look. That's when they found out that they was having those vasoconstrictions in my brain. Um, I just remember there being lots of people around my bed. So there was like the doctor and then they're kind of – the doctor, doctor, and then the people training up to be a doctor, and then even more because it was quite a it was quite a rare condition at that stage. So they were very interested in it, and it was scary, confronting. I felt extremely vulnerable in the ICU in the neuro ward. You have all the beds that go around in the circle, and the nurses' stations in the middle, but you often don't have your curtains pulled so that they can always see you at all times. And there's someone that stands next to your bed 24-7. So there was always a nurse there watching over me the whole time. And there were lots of moments that I thought, I'm in a lot of trouble if someone's got to stand next to my bed all the time, you know, but I didn't quite comprehend what that translated to. I just had that feeling. And so when people were standing around, like, were your kids coming in to, to see you? Like, did you recognize them? My husband says they did come in. They they flew my three kids down, my mom and my mother-in-law and my husband all flew down to Sydney. I don't remember them being there at all. Interestingly, my daughter, who's now 12, came into my bed just this week and she started crying. And I was like, are you okay, honey? She's like, people just don't understand. They think that they're having a tough time because their bag strap breaks or, you know, their pen lid gets dropped. And she's like, that's not tough. Like... We've just been dealing with all of these things. We've had a whole heap of medical since my stroke. At the moment, my other daughter's been off school for six weeks because she's been incredibly unwell with a chronic illness. My mum's got dementia. Like there's a whole list of things, right? But my daughter said in that moment, she's like, and, you know, watching your mum have these seizures, they don't know how scary that is. Like that, that is hard, not knowing if your mum's going to get off the ground. And that really like... Whew, that was like an arrow to the heart because I thought she was so little she couldn't possibly remember. It's interesting when our kids start to reflect back our life situations, our life challenges to us. As a parent, like, did you feel a sense of remorse or guilt that, you know, what's happened to you is rubbing off on your daughter like that? Or do you actually feel more proud that she's tuning into that and and flying the flag like that as well. I struggled and my tears more often than not were around being a parent, not being the parent I want to be, not being available the way that I want to be available, not being able to do the things that I thought in my head and the expectations that I'd set up for myself around what parenting looked like. You know, for two years post my stroke, I had headaches every day obviously the young kids my husband describes he used to put all three of them in the car and just drive around the farm for hours because I couldn't have noise in the background you know I think back to that time and how critical those formative years are for our kids and their connection and their growth and their development of relationships and I was in bed either sleeping or with this headache where I couldn't have any noise or light around me even though I don't remember that time I have a sense of sadness around what potentially I missed and what the kids missed from their mum. Like we're so fortunate as well that I'm how I am now. You know, I'm so grateful that I've had the recovery that I've had. But when you're in it, you don't know that yet that's the recovery you're going to have. I didn't know that I would ever get back to a place that I could work, drive, be alone with the kids, know if I had undies on, know if I'd eaten that day. Like I had a sign on my front door that says, don't walk out, you have three children. Wow. And then you touched on there like the the sign in itself, but also your husband taking the kids out on the farm and driving them around. What else did you have to do to adapt to life post the stroke? What were the things that you had to do in those early, I guess those earlier years to be well or just to be okay? There were lots of things. One that I remember distinctly was trying to work out how to create a brain outside of my head. How do I replicate what used to work and now isn't? So I rang my friends that I knew were really systemized, really organized, and I said things like, how do you clean the rubbish out of your car? 
And one of the girls said, I have a plastic bag that I hang over the gear stick and I put the rubbish in. I was like, great. So then I did that. And then another friend might say, we had jars in the pantry and we label them so the kids know where to put it. And I was like, great. I'll try that. So then I'd go and we bought a labeler and we labeled everything in the pantry so that we I could easily find things or put things back. So I had to kind of, I'm not a systems person by nature. That was definitely something I had to do. We had, I think, five whiteboards around the house so that when I thought of something, I could quickly write it up there before it left my brain. In the shower, I had a whiteboard marker so I could write on the glass or on the tiles if something came up into my mind in the shower. <laughs> we had a cleaner that helped at that time and she used to laugh. She'd be like, you know, this is the best part of my week when I come in and see what you've been thinking about because there's just this <laughs> writing all over the shower wall because I'd be like, oh, yes, and I've got to remember this or this or get an idea about something. So the, the systems was a big part. How do I create systems externally to me that's going to help me function in an everyday life internally my inner critic was pretty strong at that stage you know you're not good enough you're not doing enough you should be better than this like come on like keep going one of my greatest strengths is my drive and my tenaciousness Man, it brought me under at times in my rehab though because I was cranky that I wasn't driving more or that I wasn't working harder or maybe if perhaps I just did another 5% of something, I, I might recover a little bit quicker. And so trying to find kindness and nurturing when you're in recovery for your life, like when you're trying to get your life back, whether that be being able to eat on your own, whether that be able to be a mum where your kids can be left alone with you. We had to have people in the house 24-7 for months post my hospital because I would leave the door open and the kids would just walk out on the road. Remember, they're little toddlers, right? So finding that self-nurture and that love and that kindness to turn inwards and say it's okay was really hard and really challenging and sometimes still is like if I forget someone's name even today because that's one of the hardest things for me is remembering people's names there's this little voice that just pokes its little head up and says how dare you not know who they are and who do you think you are like it's quite mean what about your your, your husband like what had to change there for him to be able to support you but also for you to still support him as well through that period? Uh, he is a rock. Anyone that knows us and has heard me speak before would probably have heard me talk about Flinny. He is so solid and so compassionate and so patient. Maybe because of his medical background, I'm often in awe of how patient he can be. He's very much like, well, it is how it is and we've just got to find a way through. I remember one day he did say to me though, because I was quite the social butterfly and I invite people over and I'm very extroverted, he's quite introverted, and, and he turned around to me one day and he said, oh, what's our life going to look like if you never want to have anyone over again? Because at that stage I'd like shut off from the community and I just I didn't have capacity, literal capacity. It's not that I didn't want to see people. I actually just didn't have enough energy to see people. And I remember thinking my heart broke because I was like, our relationship has worked so well because we are opposites and different and we found that middle ground, which we started to talk about at the beginning of this podcast, how do you meet in the middle? We had done a lot of work around meeting in the middle and now all of a sudden those scales had tipped. Like I wasn't the person that he married. I wasn't the person I was the day before my stroke. I was homeless in my body. I was homeless in my mind. For a long period, for for at least two years. And so how long did it take for you to feel like you're regaining control over your life and back to a new normal? Everyone's, I'm using this term a lot at the moment, thanks to all the premiers and prime ministers of the world who, who phrased this word after COVID. But yeah, what? how did new normal look for you? How long did it take for you to get to that point? I would say there's been chapters I got my license back, I think, again, blurry, I think about six or nine month mark. They said initially that I couldn't exercise, couldn't drink, couldn't drive. There was too big a risk because they didn't know this condition supposedly only lasts for four months of your life and then it should disappear and not come back. So my risk of having another stroke, as far as I know, is is you're more likely to have a stroke than me according to the statistics and data. So we had to get through that four months. So they wrapped me in cotton wool. And then after that, it was like, okay, I can, I remember that like the day before I was able to drive, I'm like, 
today I can't drive, but tomorrow I can. That did not make sense in my world. I'm like, am I safe to drive? Am I going to be able to recognize the lights? Like back then it was like, will I actually understand what orange red? Of course I would because that was my old memory, but I was so scared and so nervous about trusting my mind and body to do what I'm asking it to. It was a real, like I said, homelessness. It was a real like what once I felt so much confidence in, I just lost all confidence. The trust bank was zero. And so then being given a car to say, okay, well, you can now drive. I was like, what? Um, yeah, so the new normal, I don't know that it's ever arrived. I don't know that I've ever been like, this is my new normal. But there was the chapter of like not being able to drive, not being able to exercise. And then I moved into, okay, I could slowly start to get my life back. But I made so many mistakes. Like I walked out of my office one day and the car was still on with the keys in it in the, just out the front on the main street. Now people will be like, oh, I do that all the time. I do that every day. Like that's a normal. I remember walking out into the driveway and ringing my husband and being like, there's no car here. I don't know where the car is. He's like, we dropped it off this morning at the mechanics. And I was like, did we? How am I going to get to town? Because I had a meeting, but I hadn't organized it because I couldn't connect those dots. So, so often I feel like I'm standing there naked and I'm like, oh, I've made a mistake or I haven't done this or I don't know who you are or, man, I forgot that. Like I forget really, really important things. The thing with my memory is it doesn't prioritize according to what's important. I can forget to pick up the kids from school as equally as I can forget to put on my underpants, as equally as I can forget an exec meeting. So I have to have really strong systems and diaries and notices and people reminding me and then when I do forget, I have to be really kind to myself, which I'm still trying to navigate because I still get a little bit cranky and a little bit upset with, man, that wasn't that hard. Like, how could you forget that? So what does your system look like for an average day in your life? Do you keep a diary or a schedule and you keep ticking things off as you go? What does it look like for you? Well, nine years on, it is very systemized still. Like I said, I'm not a systems person by nature. And the reason why I know it's still systems is when COVID hit, I didn't know whether I was coming or going because my whole systems had changed. And that threw such a spanner in the works. It was like you'd picked me up from Australia and popped me in Japan because I was at home and wasn't going anywhere because my day now looks like I wake up at the same time most days, so 4.30, sometimes 5. Every morning I walk to the kitchen, I make a coffee, I do some meditation, have a little snuggle with the dog, Then I go and I move in some capacity, whether that be a cycle or a walk. I come home. It doesn't matter the timing, but it matters with the order. So you can't swap my order. You can swap the time. You can move everything back two hours and it's fine. Come home, I have to have a shower because if I don't have a shower, I won't remember to take my medication or I won't remember to put undies on. So have a shower, take my medication, go and get dressed for the day. Sometimes it's check my diary to see what's on. Or I just get in the habit now of getting dressed in corporate and taking my fitness gear with me just in case I forget. (laughs) So I have both (laughs) because I work in both businesses. And then I walk out, like today I walked out of the house. I was like, oh, I forgot to eat because the kids went to a dentist appointment before school. So had my kids been home, I would have remembered to eat because after my shower I walk into the kitchen and I sit down with the kids and eat. But changing that one thing, removing the children from the house, I forgot to have breakfast. Now, that's a very simple example, but multiply that, put that on steroids and you do, you're running a couple of companies and you've got board meetings and exec meetings and, you know, change one thing in my day and I could forget that. And you touched on the entrepreneurship. How do you manage that? Like navigating multiple businesses or even getting back to work from the start? Like how has the, your work life been impacted? So I started back in fitness again. So when I left doing clinical therapy, I always thought I'd come back, right? I was like, I'm just going to take a break while the kids are little. I was working mainly in domestic violence, sexual assault, kids that were homeless or at risk of homelessness. And so quite heavy work, absolutely loved it. But at the time that I had little children, I was like, I need to step away from this for now. Then when I had my stroke, I realized that I wouldn't be going back to that anytime soon. My cognitive ability was slowed down. If you imagine being on six lane highway, with traffic coming and going and still being able to read the signs, see if there's someone walking on the side of the road, notice if you need to overtake a car. I was on a one-lane highway going one way with no streetlights. That's kind of what it felt like after my stroke for years, for years. And then going back to work looked like 
well, what can I do? And it was, I started with one client and then two and then three. And slowly over time, when systems were put in place, I was able to expand my bandwidth and then stay there for a little while until things felt comfortable again. And then I was able to expand my bandwidth again, stay there. So just at the moment, we've got a bit of vibration happening in our companies. Like I'm super busy, like probably the busiest I've been in a couple of years. There is like people knocking on the door. I've got lots of workshops. I'm doing guest uh, keynotes uh, around Australia. Like it's it's really busy. And I actually said to my husband the other day, well, we're, we're hitting that bandwidth shake. Like we need to make some decisions here about what it looks like going forwards. We either hop over the band <laughs> and put more systems in place or we shrink back because I can't keep going the way I'm going. Or I'm going to start making a lot more mistakes because I don't have the systems behind me to allow me to have a free lane to do what I love to do. So it's the, the systems, whether that be the diary, the like physical diary or the people that I work with or the way the routine on how I do things, whatever the system is, that's what allows me to have a couple of companies. That's what allows me to grow a podcast. I don't know if that answers your question. It does. And, and I was going to ask about the people and the people that you bring into your businesses. Do you look for a specific type of person who can work around this or work with this? Yes. Yes, they've got to be a very special person because, like I said, I make so many mistakes and I'm a bit of a hurricane, right? Like when we talk about that goat, I still, my stroke has not stopped my creativity and my drive to try new things and to create challenges in life and to grow the companies. I still am so passionate about growth, helping people, having change in my life, but I can't do that on my own anymore. So I try and bring people in. I've got to do a lot of training in disc personality profiling and and one of the areas of that is are you a big picture person or a detail person? Are you a task person or a people person? So I try and have diversity within my team but we try and have really honest conversations about it. So I'll say to someone, you can ask me to slow down or you can tap me on the shoulder and be like, Arles, I just need for the next 30 minutes for you to be in detail or I say to every single person I meet, it is okay for you to remind me that I've forgotten. If you think I've forgotten, I guarantee you I have without a shadow of a doubt. So just giving people permission to step into that space and say, you forgot me or you forgot this or tap, tap, tap. I've got to ask a cheeky question here, if, if you don't mind. Do you ever use your, your memory loss to your advantage? All the time. <laughs> I'm going to give you an example. I was walking down the street. So there's a part of my family I've got, as I mentioned, I, my background was a bit rough and there's certain members of our family I have no contact with and I haven't for decades. And this lady walks up to me in the street and she's like, Ali, it is so good to see you. And I just went blank and was like, sorry, do I know you? And she's like, what? I was like, I don't, do I know you? She's like, I'm your auntie. I'm like, no, no, I haven't met you. And we walked away and one of my kids was like, mom. I was like, look, I have to be able to use it to my advantage sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> what about with your kids? It wasn't, have you got one for your oh, kids? On the other foot, on the other foot. So my kids took full advantage of this, right? There's a couple of things I can think of. They were little and they were having a fight. And I was like, don't stop, stop. You need to give that Barbie back to your sister. And one of them turns around and says, ah, it doesn't matter. She'll forget in five minutes. <laughs> Stuff like that all the time. The other one said to me, she came up, she said, mum, you know, you, you let us have Milo every night before you had your stroke. I was like, bullshit. Like I'm a fitness trainer. So, I'm, you know, I value health and nutrition. And she's like, yeah, yeah, you just don't remember. You definitely used to let us have Milo every single night before we went to bed. So they try and pull it over my eyes all the time. I was going to ask though, like, because you said before when you were driving to the hospital, you had that last strong memory. So do you remember much before the stroke? Is like that crystal clear or, yep. you know, afterwards? Because then if your daughter's saying before your stroke, we had Milo, you're like, no, I have to remember that. Yeah. So <laughs> I have full memories of before the stroke. My memory challenges now are only really auditory. So if someone's verbally telling me something or people, I have a lot of trouble remembering people and anything that's kind of new information that comes at me quickly, I can forget really easily. But I would say my memory is back up to like nine out of 10 now, but because it's got no priority, that one out of 10 that I miss can be anything. Elliot, this is a really insightful 
conversation. So what's the, the long-term, like you said, you talked about medication before. Are there any other things like do you have to go to therapy or like occupational therapy, psychology, anything like that to maintain this level of functioning or is it kind of everything's past you now and you're just living your own life? It's really hard to tell. So I, two and a half years ago, got diagnosed with a chronic illness called POTS, Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome, which the way that it showed up in my life was I had pins and needles, I had numbness, I had memory loss again, I had fatigue in my brain, brain fog. I couldn't stand, I couldn't exercise. At that time, I thought I was dying. And they did question maybe this brain condition had come back. Like maybe I was one of the handful of people in the world that it's come back, which we've now discovered it isn't. I have POTS. So it's hard for me to separate the two out. I believe that I recovered exceptionally well from my stroke and I'll always be forever grateful how much I regained of my life. Will I know if that was the path I was going to take if I hadn't had a stroke? I'll never know. I'll never know what belongs with getting older, what belongs with having three kids, what belongs with just running a couple of companies and forgetting. But what I do know is I still sometimes can't find words in my head. So if I'm up on stage giving a keynote, I might want to say, you know, I went and got an orange from the fruit bowl and I go to say it and I'm like, what's that word? And for everyone else, they might be able to track back. They might be able to go, oh, it's orange, it's in the fruit bowl, it's next to the apple, it must be an orange. I just feel like there's this blank wall in my brain and there's not even a crack to try and get through and peer through to see what's behind it. So I have gotten very good at adjusting my words and describing something different. And if I was to listen to me talking, even this podcast, it's happened quite a few times today, I would listen back to this and be like, oh, God, you can't tell. Like you you may not be able to tell, but I can tell. It's like I'm reaching for the salt and pepper shaker, but I can't quite get it and it's in slow motion. And so because I can't get it, I've now got to turn around and reach for the tomato sauce. Like that's what it feels like in my brain. Yeah. Yeah, and I've had to be okay with being okay with it not being the right word and that people can't tell because – I used to introduce myself like, hi, I'm Ali. I've had a stroke almost, not that, not like that, but I'd be like, I need people to know that I'm not going to remember them and that I'm going to get it wrong and that I can't find my words. And so I used to put it in front of who I was so that they didn't judge me, whereas now I'm getting much better at putting it behind me because it's not who I am. It's just something I went through. On that, I was going to talk about sharing your story and, and why it's so important. And you've got the Challenges That Change Us podcast. And I came on and talked about a whole bunch of men's mental health stuff. Challenges that change us, we all have similar stories or not with different stories that of events that change us. And for some people, they they don't believe whatever happened is their identity. Other people think it's just something that's happened to them. Talk us through where the inspiration for the podcast come through and, and why sharing stories is so important to inspire other people to, you know, get the help that they need. Well, I mentioned earlier that I got POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. So the podcast was really born out of that adversity. I had gone from at that time I was running three companies and I just completed a half Ironman, which is a 2K swim, <laughs> wow. I don't know, maybe 90K bike ride, 21K run. So I just completed that and three, <laughs> three weeks later I started to get a pain in my leg and I was like, oh, maybe it's a tendinopathy, maybe something's wrong. And so I went to the physio and then a few weeks after that, she started to question about maybe it's something going on neurologically and there was something bigger going on. And over those next couple of months, I went from being this like high achiever, very fit, multiple things on the go, loving life to not being able to stand up, literally not being able to stand up and have a shower or walk to the kitchen and get a cup of tea. And it felt like overnight to me, but it was probably over a couple of months. And I couldn't even remember things and on my 40th birthday I couldn't even sit up in bed to have a cup of tea with the kids. Like I was so sick. I was sure I was dying. I was like you can't go from being an iron woman to not being able to walk unless you have cancer or a brain condition or something seriously is wrong here. And I was just getting worse. Every day was getting worse. Life was hard. It was like I had a cement coat around my whole body and I couldn't move, and I couldn't do anything, and I was scared. I started writing letters to the kids because I was like, if I'm not going to be around, it will make me cry. 
Um, if I'm not going to be around, there's still so much I want to say to them. And I had a commercial publisher ring me at that time and ask if they could write my story from my childhood. And I remember thinking, I'm not great with written words. My spelling is atrocious. I can't put sentences together. I'm really well known for, you know, my social media and making massive mistakes and blunders that I don't even notice. And then I get a hundred text messages from people being, take that down. You spelled <laughs> it wrong and it doesn't make sense. And so I wasn't too keen on, on the written word. And I just kept thinking, what am, there's so much more I want my three children to know. And I'm not done helping people. Like I have a heart so big that I want to help people that cross my path in any capacity, whether that be counselling, whether that be in fitness, whether that be in exec coaching, whether that be in workshops. I just love wholeheartedly sitting with someone or being with someone in a room and helping them broaden their minds get greater insights, work through a problem, like that just really lights my soul up. And I was like, what am I going to do? The only thing I can do is talk and I can talk underwater. So there must be something I can do. If I'm only got a few more months left on this world, how can I use my voice to help have impact for more people and leave a legacy for my children? Um, crying again. And so I had a girl that mentioned that she was doing a podcast and I was like, what's that? Like, <laughs> I think I'd listened to two podcasts in my life. I was like, how do you edit it? And she said, oh, I've got an editor. And I was like, give me his name. And I rang Sam, who's our editor, superstar. And it was like, mate, if I talk, can you edit it? He's like, what? <laughs> if I talk, can you edit it? Can you give me some context? <laughs> and I was like, well, if I like, I don't know, do I interview people or do I just chat? But like, can we capture can we do something that's going to help people? And can we do something that's going to create these memories and these conversations for my children? He's like, yes, but we might need to do some more work on that. I was like, great. Well, they think my brain conditions come back. So I will call you in a few months once I know that I can actually commit to something longer than a couple of days. And then I called him back and we started and that's how challenges that change are started. And and it really was for my children initially. It really was about how do I help them throughout life if I'm not going to be here and how do I help give them exposure to conversations that I've spent so many years hearing from people, whether that be on a park bench, in the park, sitting beside someone on the beach looking at the ocean, in a counselling room, on a netball. Like the stories that I've heard over the years has helped me understand that every human has a story and every human comes with fear and shame and excitement and joy and anger and, you know, to really live a rich life. You, you kind of have to experience everything. And so I wanted them to understand that, to know that their differences and their uniqueness is what makes them them and not to judge themselves on the person next to them or look over to the next paddock and say, but they're doing it this way. You know, I want to really give them that strength and that understanding to step up to their lane, however that looks. And that lane is not always going to be smooth and that is completely okay. And so that's how that's how it started. And then it's like, Gone bangbusters, like <laughs> 80 countries on the Australian charts. And and so now I'm like reversing and being like, whoa, what systems do I need to put in place? <laughs> yeah, what, what podcasting systems? <laughs> Sam, where's my podcasting system? Yes. And amazing. And that's why I started the Mindful Men podcast is to share stories to inspire blokes out there who are listening to go, you know what? I think I, I've had a stroke and maybe I need to go get that checked up. Or maybe I know someone who's had a stroke. And I can now understand things a little bit differently if they're not remembering who I am in the moment or if their morning's been derailed because their routine's been put out of whack for whatever reason. Or for someone like me, I, I, I go out there going, I think I struggle with mental health. I might go talk to my GP about it. And it's the power of our words can go a long way to helping us heal. Absolutely. I, I think... We've been telling stories for generations, you know. It's not a new concept. I think it's new in this day and age in, in doing it through a podcast, but it's part of the way that we connect with other people and part of the way that we have shared experience and, and how we learn, you know, just as you said. There might be one thing that I've said in this podcast or they go and listen to the podcast that you and I did and they're like, oh, I haven't tried that or I didn't even know that existed and it might just be enough, just maybe, 
to dip their toe in the water and try something else or to try that thing. Absolutely. Now, Ali, I am mindful you might have a schedule for this afternoon. So I want to check your schedule so that I don't put your schedule off for the rest of the afternoon. We're all good. And nothing, Masabe. <laughs> good, good to know because I can waffle a bit as well. I'm interested just to, to touch on your business side as well. So try Altitude Performance. I'd love for you to plug the business and what do you do and how does it, how does it work? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and these are the sorts of questions, if I'm really honest, I'm like, oh, my brain just goes blank. Yeah. It's something I do every single day and I'm like, hmm, what do we do in that business? But <laughs> well, we work with individuals to help with performance and well-being within a company and the company as a whole to thrive. So like I mentioned earlier, we run lots of workshops. That's probably what most people start with is they call us in to do a workshop with their team around team building, disc personality profiling, communication, culture awareness, things like that. And then we do coaching. So how do we train our leaders to be more resilient, to work with their people particularly. Like I'm not the person you bring in to look at the bank account. I'm like numbers are not my thing. But to talk to people and understand how other people operate, to start to get a sense of how you step into that conversation, what reactions you bring into the room, how you deal with those reactions, how you deal with other people's reactions, how you coach someone, how you have difficult conversations, all those sorts of things, how to really step into the space of being a leader and to be resilient in that space. So we do a lot of coaching. We have a year-long program where people we can work with the, the leaders. We work with the leaders right down to the whole team. So we do wellbeing and performance with the whole unit to try and lift them into a space that they can thrive and perform at a where they want to be performing. I love this. And it sounds like you bring a lot of empathy to leadership. Yeah. Compassion for your staff. And I've been in, in environments, and this is where my burnout story happened is feeling like I couldn't be me. I had to be this robot that just showed up to work every day and pressed go, 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 go. No self-compassion or awareness of how I was tracking. And luckily for me, COVID happened. And then what happened with COVID is, yes, I burnt out, but it enabled conversations around mental health and mental well-being in workplaces because 12 months earlier, if that had happened, it might have been a very different outcome for me. Yeah. And I think it's leading people is hard because sometimes it's not as tangible as what we'd like it to be. So when you go in to have a conversation with someone, sometimes you don't see the outcome in that moment. You might be planting a seed that's going to get watered later. But it's really about when we're going in for a conversation, is this conversation about the other person and how do we just sit and hold space for them even though we have all these things going on for us versus when is it that it's an information, passing of information and what does that look like and how does that differ? Or is it a conversation around, you know, some of the behaviours that I've noticed lately probably don't align with the values of the company. What does that conversation look like? There's a real art to communicating and it's quite complicated and complex. We can simplify it into certain like topics and areas and themes, but at the end of the day, two humans are complicated and complex and they are coming with a suitcase of experiences, with a suitcase of core beliefs, with a suitcase of expectations, whether you like it or not, we both come into the conversation with with stuff. And so how do you navigate that? And how do you know when to lift up and out versus sit in it with them? Very hard in, in corporate, not just at the workplace, but in our social circles too, our family circles, how in, knowing when to pull back and when to insert ourselves as well, very challenging. But I'll put the links to both the Challenges That Changed Us podcast and also Try Altitude Performance in the show notes. If anyone wants to check that out, they can do that. But Ali, I really enjoyed this conversation. I always have a good time when I have a chat with you. It is a lot of my my day when we get to, to get together and have a chat. We could probably go for six hours, but I'm not going to do that to you. I've got other things to do too. <laughs> um, the last thing I like to do with all my guests is to lift ourselves back up. We do talk about some heavy topics on the show. And today we talk about stroke and the impact of stroke. And so I'm interested for you to plug something that's making you feel good at the moment. And whether that's something self-care, something you're watching on TV, something you're listening to, anything that's just lighting you up at the moment that we can share with the audience. Can I say two things? Yeah, of course you can. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the first is right now, and I'm just going to describe this for your listeners so they get a full understanding of what's happening here. So we're on video when we do this conversation and normally like it's live and you can see the other person, but for some reason today, Simon's video is delayed. So right now he's talking to me even though he's not talking. So this whole interview, I'm trying to not look at the screen because your reactions are like you're laughing when I'm saying something serious and then sad when I'm saying, and I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, I don't know when I'm coming or going. So that just is like that my whole, this whole hour I've been laughing internally because I'm like <laughs> if only people could see what I'm seeing right now as I'm trying to have this conversation. So that's definitely my first. But the Second thing is just the thing that lights me up a lot at the moment is our attitude and we get to choose that, you know, and I love watching my kids pick the attitude that they step into the world with. I love the attitude that my husband and I are choosing at the moment. You know, it is really something that we can tap into. It is with us every minute of every day, like our breath, and we get to choose what attitude we want to show up with. So that's something that I'm really passionate about at the moment and I'm talking to the kids a lot about. And yeah, it's it's something that I have to keep revisiting for myself. If I'm having a bit of an off day, it's like, okay, do I want to sit in this space or do I want to actually have a conversation with myself and, and think about what else I can do here? Uh, they are great answers, both one and two. <laughs> you're still nodding at me. You're like, <laughs> and now you're completely frozen. So <laughs> I'm going to blame number one because, interestingly, on my end, everything's working fine. So hopefully it works out well. But I'm going to blame it on Optus. And Optus, if you're listening to, to me, I don't want data. I want financial repercussions. I want my day's worth of bandwidth back if I can get that. Anyway. Have you been wondering why I'm constantly looking over to the side instead of at you? It's because you're doing weird facial expressions because it's delayed. <laughs> it is what it is though. And we've had an amazing chat despite the challenges that not necessarily going to change us today, but maybe they might change someone who's listening. So Ali, thanks so much for coming on, sharing your story. It is raw, it's real, and I, I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much, Simon. It is just an honour to be here and with your listeners and, you know, you're doing such an amazing job in this space. And for those that haven't listened, they should go listen to the one that we did with you because it's one of the most common and on podcasts. Out of all the ones I've done, people are constantly coming up to me and being like, that was a game changer or that was an eye-opener listening to your story. So, you know, thank you for, for bringing me on, but thank you for being a part of my community and sharing your story. That warms the heart as well. And I'm going to put the, I'm going to shameless plug and put that episode in the show notes as well. So everyone goes straight after they listen to this one, go check out that one too. But Ali, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode and I hope you got some value from it. If anything triggered your mental health today, please reach out to your support networks. Also, if you loved what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the show and share it with your mates. For more from Mindful Men, you can check us out on Instagram and YouTube and I'll throw the links to these pages in the show notes below. But until next time, stay mindful.